Over the last several months, we've been uh, taking a tour, if you will, of the incredible panorama of God's grace that is Romans 8. God's grace, his uh, undeserved kindness, his unmerited favor, it of course shines through the whole Bible, but many have remarked how it, it shines with a unique, dazzling brightness in the eighth chapter of Romans, and we've been enjoying that together. As we move into a new series this morning, one question that we might ask upon completing our awe-inspiring tour of Romans 8 is, what kind of people then should we be? If we are those who have taken shelter in the condemnation-canceling power of the cross, if we are those who have discovered ourselves to be the object of God's eternal electing love, if we are those who have been made alive by the Spirit for a new kind of existence, if that is all true of us, what kind of people should we be? And of course, there are many answers to that question, but the the answer that we want to explore in this series over the next few weeks is that we ought to be a people for the world. We are people who exist as a people for the benefit of those around us. The grace that we have received is meant to be unleashed through us to others. So would you turn with me to Exodus chapter 19 as we begin this new series. Exodus chapter 19. We're going to be starting this series in the Old Testament, among other reasons, because... We want you to see, we want to be reminded that this idea that that God shows us grace in order to unleash that grace through us to others is not new in the New Testament. It doesn't just show up out of nowhere in the Great Commission of Matthew 28. It has always been God's design to save a people in order to reach more people through that saved people. So we could go all the way back to Adam and his role in the garden. We could go all the way back to Abraham. But for our purposes, we'll start with Israel, with the nation of Israel. And we're going to look at really their charter as a people in the first few verses of Exodus chapter 19. So would you follow along as I read Exodus 19 verses 1 through 6. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. 
The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Let's pray. God, we receive this, your word, through Moses. And we ask that you would be present in this very hour by your spirit to bless our hearing and our considering of your word. Meet us and change us by your grace. Amen. God saves people to make them a holy people so that through them he might save more people. That's what I want you to see from Exodus 19, 1 through 6. God saves people to make them a holy people so that through them he might save more people. And I want to persuade you of this, perhaps simply remind you of this by showing you how each of the three parts of that idea are found in this text. God saves a people to make them a holy people, so that through them he might save more people. So first, God saves people. Look at verse 4. Starting with this verse, God is giving a message to Moses that he is to relay to the rest of the people waiting down at the foot of the mountain. Look at how God starts this message in verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. With that one sentence, God has essentially summarized the entirety of Exodus chapters 1 through 18. If you go back and read the book of Exodus, God comes to Israel in their slavery and captivity in Egypt, and he mightily rescues them. He decimates their enslavers with ten mighty plagues. He brings them miraculously through the waters of the Red Sea. He brings them all the way to this particular place, Mount Sinai, in order to begin to dwell with them as his people. So God has accomplished a mighty salvation for Israel. And verse 4 is is reminding them of that. And even the geography of verses 1 through 3 underscores that. As you look at 1 through 3, we're reminded in verse 1 that they've recently come out of Egypt. They've traveled through the wilderness and they have now arrived at a particular mountain, Mount Sinai, which is the same mountain where God met Moses in the burning bush. 
And it was at that time that God promised Moses that he would bring the people of Israel out of Egypt back to this very mountain. So even though Israel is headed towards the promised land, towards Canaan, uh, this is not a detour. This was a planned stop out of Egypt to Mount Sinai because it's at Sinai that Israel will get a glimpse of God's presence. It's here at Sinai that Israel will receive God's law. It's here at Mount Sinai that Israel will enter into a covenant with Yahweh to be his nation, his covenant people. So this paragraph that we've just looked at is the the opening message of this major moment in Israel's history. And what I want you to see, what I don't want us to miss, is that God starts with his accomplished salvation. If you keep reading Exodus, there are a lot of commands. There's a lot of law as part of this covenant. But notice where the whole Mount Sinai episode begins. God starts with, not thou shalt and thou shalt not. He starts with, you have seen what I did. That is the starting point for all of the instruction, all of the, the commandments that God is about to give Israel All of that is in response to the saving grace that he's already shown them. The first job that I had out of college was at the Four Seasons Hotel in Chicago. And like many jobs, I started out in a probationary period. I had 90 days where I was hired, I was getting paid, but I was really proving myself that I belonged there. I was showing my employer, that I belonged by my performance and my compliance with all of the uh, expectations and policies of my workplace. Now, think about how different that is from a family. You don't bring your child home from the hospital or from finalizing their adoption and sit them down and say, all right, we're going to give you five years and we'll see if you're a good fit or not. But soon enough, as the child grows, you do have some expectations for them. You do have some rules that you give them to follow. So if you think about what distinguishes a a workplace, an employer, from a family, it's not that one has expectations and the other doesn't. What distinguishes the two is that a workplace gives you expectations as the condition of your belonging. While a family gives you expectations on the basis of your belonging. You are to obey your mother and father because you are irrevocably theirs. And that's what God is doing with Israel. He doesn't give them the law to say, all right, let's see, if you can qualify to be my people. He says, I have saved you. You are mine. Here's how you respond. So God saves people. We don't save 
ourselves. And that's just as true in the Old Testament as in the New Testament. That's the first part. God saves people. Second, we see in this passage one of the purposes for which God does that saving. God saves people to make them a holy people. God saves people to make them a holy people. And we see this in verses 5 and 6. Let's just read these verses again, starting in verse 5. So he's reviewed the salvation and the grace in verse 4, and then he says in verse 5, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So verses 5 and 6, as you can tell, is one conditional sentence. It has an if part, and then it has a then part. The if part is what God expects of Israel, what he is calling them to be, and the then part is what God promises to do if they fulfill their calling, their responsibility. So looking at the text, you can see that the if is obeying God's voice and keeping his covenant. That's what God is calling his saved people to do. And then his promise to them, if they will do that, is to make them a people defined by three things. Do you see that in the end of verse 5 into verse 6? He will make them his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. So at this point, I just want to show you two main things here. Two things to note about this this idea of God saving people to make them a holy people. First, notice that Israel's obedience is the response of faith to God's grace. Look at verse 5. The expectation of verse 5 is built on the word therefore. Therefore, in light of verse 4, in light of what I've already done, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. So what's happening here in verse 5 is God is describing what we would call in our New Testament world saving faith. He's describing saving faith in terms of what it produces. Faith produces obedience. Faith leads to covenant loyalty to the one you trust in. And really, if you think about the nature of faith, how could it be otherwise? It is in the nature of trust that you have enough confidence in the thing or the person you trust to give them some part of yourself or something that belongs to you. If you trust an airplane, you get on the airplane. If you trust a chair, you sit in it. If you trust a bank, you put your money in it. If you trust God, you do what he says. So what God is calling Israel to is not earning their salvation, not paying him back for the Exodus rescue. He's simply telling them, here's what faith 
in me looks like in the concrete realities of life. Faith looks like obedience in the concrete realities of life. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, Israel is meant to be a holy people. So in that response of faith that produces obedience and loyalty, what God promises to do, what God says will happen, is they will be a treasured possession in a holy people. We'll come back to the kingdom of priests part in just a few minutes. I think those first and third phrases, treasured possession in verse 5, holy nation in verse 6, I think those are basically synonymous. Uh, And to see that, it helps to just think about what the word holiness means. To be holy simply means to be set apart. To be holy is to be set apart. So in this context, uh, we can think of a few different ways that Israel is meant to be set apart. Israel is supposed to be dedicated to God's special use so that they will turn away from sin and be distinct from the other nations. All of those are are different aspects of set-apartness. Set apart to God, set apart from sin, set apart from the other nations. They're dedicated to God's special use so that they will turn away from sin and wickedness and evil and thus be different from the nations around them. So God intends to make of them a holy people. So this is one of the purposes of salvation. Your personal holiness and mine is not an optional upgrade for the particularly zealous and spiritual among us. Your personal holiness and mine is one of the reasons God saved us. One of the the greatest archaeological discoveries in the last few centuries was the finding of the Rosetta Stone. So it was discovered by the French in Egypt uh, totally on accident. They were digging uh, part of some construction project and they found the Rosetta Stone buried underground as part of a bigger wall, part of a bigger stone structure. They realized it was significant and soon enough uh, it comes into the possession of the British. So the British take the Rosetta Stone and they put it in the British Museum. And it has been on display at the British Museum ever since 1802. And what's interesting is the stone was so heavy that the British Museum actually had to ask Parliament for money to build a whole new gallery that was strong enough to support the weight of the Rosetta Stone. And people have been going to the British Museum in London ever since to look at it. So as you think about that process, that process of going from buried in the dirt to on display in a custom-built gallery of one of the greatest museums in the world, that is a process of being set apart. The Rosetta Stone was set apart in all of these ways because it was valued, because it was cherished as something important. 
And it's the same with God and his people. He sets his electing love upon us. And out of that great love, he sets out to make us lovely. God's grace means that he cherishes us even when we are covered in the dirt and grime of our own sin and selfishness and rebellion against him. But because he cherishes us, how could he leave us like that? He, he, he can't, and he won't. So holiness is one of the purposes of your salvation. God saves people in order to make them a holy people, set apart, dedicated to him, turning away from sin, distinct from the world around us. So God saves people. That's the first part. The purpose of that salvation, one of the purposes, is to make us holy. And now third, I want you to see that there's a purpose for that holiness, that this text points to a purpose that God has for our holiness. And that purpose is that more people might be saved through the work of his holy people. I think we see this in a couple different ways. One is implied and one is more explicit. The implied reason is in verse 5. In verse 5, at the very end, there's a little aside that God says. He says, for all the earth is mine. And that comes right on the heels of God promising that Israel will be his special possession, his dedicated personal nation among all the nations. But he quickly adds the reason why he can do that is because all the nations belong to him. And what that hints at, what that reminds us of, is that God, though he is the God of Israel, is the creator of heaven and earth. All the nations belong to him. He continues, even now in Exodus, to have an interest in all nations, not just Israel. So that's the, that's the implied uh, piece of evidence that, that I would point to to say Israel's holiness has a purpose beyond just their own community of faith. But there's a more clear piece of evidence, and that's in verse 6. One of the three characteristics that God promises for them, if they will be loyal to him, is that they will be, verse 6 says, a kingdom of priests. So what is a priest? A priest is a mediator. A priest stands in between God and people in order to bring people close to God and to bring God close to people. Later, as God is giving his law, he will set aside one tribe from Israel, Levites, to be the priestly tribe, to serve that mediatorial function for the rest of Israel. But here, before God does that, he sets aside the whole nation to be a kingdom of priests, to in some way mediate God to the nations and the nations to God. Christopher Wright is an Old Testament scholar, and he says this, as the people of Yahweh, Israel would have the historical task of bringing the knowledge of God to the nations and bringing the nations to the means of atonement with God. So Israel helps the nations know what God is like, 
And they are given the means of atonement, which starts out with the sacrificial system. They, are, they possess the means of atonement that allows the nations to be made right with God. So when we look at this charter in Exodus 19, 1 through 6, we see these two realities that, that seem to pull in different directions, but they go together. And they are, on the one hand, Israel's distinctiveness. It is part of their DNA to be different, to be other than the rest of the world. And yet, at the very same time, that otherness is meant to serve and help those very nations. Here's Christopher Wright again. Israel's election serves God's mission. Israel's election serves God's mission. And brothers and sisters, if you are trusting in Christ as your king and rescuer, you have been grafted into the people of God. And you inherit this identity and this purpose. When Jesus came, he was Israel's Messiah and also Israel's representative, embodying the nation in himself. And so Jesus, in all the things he did, he fulfilled the condition of verse 5 perfectly. On behalf of God's people. He did what Israel and what we could never do perfectly. Jesus did perfectly. Obeying and keeping covenant with his father. And so now, through his death and resurrection, Jesus is rescuing and gathering a people of both Jews and Gentiles to be rescued, set apart, and set on mission to gather still more people. So God saves people to make them a holy people so that through them he might save more people. As we consider our own lives in the light of Exodus 19, 1 through 6, I think there are two challenges this text puts before us. Two questions that we can sit under as we sit under this passage of Scripture. And the two questions are, are we growing in holiness? The second question is, are we sharing and explaining that holiness to the world around us? Are we growing in holiness are we sharing and explaining that holiness to the world around us? So first, are we growing in holiness? Our growth in being set apart, that's what sanctification is, increasing set-apartness to God from sin, distinct from others who don't follow God. Our holiness is not only our proper response to the grace of the gospel, though it is that, this text is adding it is also one means by which we bear witness to the gospel for the nations. Let me put it this way. The world needs our holiness. Even though they don't know that. One of the 
problems we have is that the word holiness has come to have some pretty negative connotations. It suggests, uh, even to many Christians' minds, uh, sort of a self-righteous, arrogant, religious strangeness. Uh, And this is not new. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards said hundreds of years ago. He said, holiness is a most beautiful, lovely thing. Men are apt to drink in strange notions of holiness from their childhood, as if it were a melancholy, morose, sour, and unpleasant thing. But there is nothing in it but what is sweet and ravishingly lovely. Biblical holiness is profoundly beautiful. So the world around us, those who don't know Christ, who are drunk on lies and enslaved to the self-destructive lifestyle of rejecting their creator, they need to see that there is a better way to exist than that. And the church is here to give them a glimmer of that better way. To show them that there is actually a better way to live than being drunk on lies and killing yourself with rebellion against God. That is beautiful. That is needed. And here's the thing. We will always do that imperfectly. But even in our imperfection, holiness can shine through. Because it is no small part of Christian holiness to run to the cross repeatedly, joyfully, humbly, and confidently. So as we strive for holiness, as we fight sin, we have a lot of motivations from the Bible that we can rely upon. Think of these as as like levers, levers that we pull as we seek to apply the transforming grace of God to our lived reality. The Bible gives us lots of motivations to obey. What Exodus 19 is saying is there is a lever you don't want to miss, which you might not realize is there, which is you should be striving for holiness for the salvation of the lost. It is part of your witness to the world to be increasingly dedicated to God, increasingly free from sin, increasingly obedient and trusting to Christ. So that's the first question. Are we growing in holiness? Because the world needs our holiness. Second question, are we sharing and explaining that holiness to the world around us? So yes, we're imperfect. Yes, we're stumbling forward. But to the degree that we have some kind of set-apartness going on in our lives and in our church, the question then becomes, Is that holiness making meaningful contact with non-Christians? 
Do they see how we are different? Do they have any idea why we are different? Many uh, researchers have been commenting and noting this phenomenon uh, that goes by a few different names, but one name would just be ideological sorting in our country, that more and more people are gravitating towards states, communities, networks of people who think very similarly to how they think. And so you have people who see the world very differently interacting with each other less and less and less because we're sorting ourselves into places where the other group or groups are simply not around. Now, I'm not a sociologist. I'm not sure how we fix that for our country. But what I do know is that Exodus 19 would say to the church that to the degree that ideological sorting cuts off the witness of the church to the lost world, we must resist it. We must resist the kind of uh, ideological segregation that cuts off the witness of the church to those around us who need that witness. Now, here's one of the problems, I think. I think a lot of us are feeling the reality that what makes us distinct is increasingly making us despised by the world around us. We, we feel it. We see it. We experience it, that the, the, the very things that make us holy, imperfectly, but holy, the things that make us different are the things that make us despised. And so almost instinctively, we, we shrink back. We try to put our head down and just kind of make it through. But friends, we must not lose our confidence that we have something the world needs. In the gospel, in the good news of a crucified and risen Messiah, gathering, setting apart, mobilizing, and ultimately glorifying a people, in that message, in that reality, we have something that the people around us need. So, are we letting that get out? Are we getting the gospel in front of people? I was just recently uh, talking to a friend of mine who lives in North Carolina, and he's a, an elder at his church, and he works in business. And he was just telling me, kind of just casually as, a, as an aside, that one of the things he's been doing is when he has a free Saturday or a free weekend, he will invite friends from work to his house, and he'll invite friends from church to his house, and he'll just see what happens. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, you don't have to be a street corner preacher to be a faithful member of this kingdom of priests. It can be as simple as being a good listener and asking good questions, getting your, your unsaved neighbor or coworker to unpack their own heart and belief system. It can be as simple as inviting a friend to read the Bible with you. Any Christian can do that. It can be as simple as slowly, in small doses, explaining what Christians believe. We have been saved to be made holy so that through us, 
God might save more people. The grace that we have tasted, the grace that we have enjoyed even this morning is not meant to dead end with us. It is meant to be unleashed through us to the world around us. So let's be the kind of people with the help of the Holy Spirit, with the power of the cross, let us be the kind of people who are growing in holiness and who are sharing and explaining that holiness to a dying world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider the high and lofty calling of Exodus 19, Lord, we can't help but be struck by how unworthy we are of such a vocation, such a calling. It is, it is above us. Lord, even, even as regenerate, new creation people, we still sin. We still fall far short of your holiness. And so we are driven once again to the cross for forgiveness and also for fresh grace to keep going, to keep growing in holiness, to keep making even fumbling efforts to get the gospel in front of our non-Christian friends and neighbors and family members and coworkers. God, who, who is adequate for such things? Surely not us, but our prayer as we prepare to go out into that very world this day is that you would make us adequate, that you would work mightily through us in spite of all the things in us that get in the way. And we pray this through Jesus and for the honor and glory of his name. Amen.